0: I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. Never standing down from my podcast watch. I am your host, Ken Levine. Thank you so much for being here. Well, I tried this as an experiment a few weeks ago where I had kind of a potpourri of different topics to talk about, and you guys seemed to respond positively to it, so I thought I would do it again. And so in today's program, I'm going to discuss a variety of topics, including how you deal with agents. In other words, what does it mean when your agent hasn't called you back in a year? Also, Character actors. We hear so much about what it's like to be a star. Well, what is it like if you get a job as slut number three? I'll be talking about character actors. And then... I will talk about a star, Tom Hanks, and how we got Tom Hanks to star in our movie, Volunteers. It's a bizarre story. And finally, I want to talk a little bit about standards and practices and the various struggles and battles that we had with TV network censors down through the years. So a lot of good stuff. Let's get to it. Hollywood and the Vine Hey, I'm sure that agents long for the good old days, those halcyon days before cell phones and email, back when it was so easy to duck calls from their writer clients and avoid them entirely, and they pretty much had the drill down pat. This is the way it used to be. You, the writer client would call. Step one, the assistant says that he's in a meeting and will call you back, although usually they say, I don't have him right now. So step two... He does call back at 1 o'clock knowing that you're at lunch. Step 3, you call back after lunch and, hey, what do you know? He's out of the office, but he will call you back. Step 4, the assistant calls you back at 6 to say that the agent has been in meetings all afternoon, but he will call you back the first thing in the morning. Step 5, he does at 8.30 the next morning, knowing that you're not in the office yet. Now, a variation of that, of course, is that he calls you back at 7.30 at night, knowing that you've left for the day. You just repeat this process until the writer eventually just gives up. Ah, but now, with cell phones, there is no out of the office. He can reach you at lunch at 7.30 at night, even 7.30 in the morning, and you can pepper him with email. It's a beautiful thing. How important you are in the business can be directly correlated to when, if ever, your agent gets back to you. Now, if you call him and he actually gets on the phone, you've just won an Oscar. If he calls you back within the hour, your movie just opened big or you have three series on the air. A lunch callback signals that you're still marketable. Same with an early afternoon callback, but... If the fortunes haven't been smiling lately, if he's not been fielding offers for you, well, then you can expect a call at 7 o'clock at night, always from his car on his way home. The priority level is right behind making an appointment to have his golf shoes polished. Now, those are great conversations, by the way, when you do finally get him at 7 o'clock at night because he's on the speakerphone and you can't hear him at all. And, of course, if he needs to refer to something, well, he doesn't have it because he left it at the office. He's going to have to call you back. Or if he is going over a canyon, you can get cut off. It's usually, yeah, I'm going to talk to him. That's usually what a conversation with your agent is like. And they all seem to have homes in the canyon. Hey, wait a minute, that should be step six. Anyway, when you do meet with your agent, well, that is also an indication of your place on the Hollywood food chain. Dinner, you are the flavor of the month. Lunch, it is okay to be seen with you. Breakfast, Charity. And of course, none of this applies when the agent is trying to recruit you. Then he's calling you six times a day, asking how your weekend was, wondering if you wanted Dodger tickets, telling you that you should have uh, Steven Spielberg's career, you know, and, and then you sign with him, and I'm sorry I don't have him right now. Of course, now with email, you can just drive him crazy by letting him know every Monday how your weekend was, whether or not he asked. And when you read in Variety that Steven Spielberg has signed a multi-million dollar deal to do the next James Bond movie and hired somebody else, you can find out why you didn't get that assignment. Okay, make sure your cell phone is on at 7 o'clock, or in this case, more like 9 o'clock. And while you've got him, you know, the Dodgers are playing the Giants On the 10th, see if you can get tickets. You know, my heart goes out to character actors. I mean, when you read the casting breakdowns, trust me, there are a lot more productions seeking male, 30s, handsome, charming than overweight, 50s, Italian-Russian mix, unibrow. And, of course, the few actors who are successful enough that they don't have to be service managers at Jiffy Lube, well, ultimately, they get trapped in their own success. And I have to say, I'm guilty of this, too. You know, producers will glance at their headshots and they'll see them read, and they'll go, Oh, God, this guy again? Jesus, I've seen him in a million things. Can't you find any new, overweight Italian Russians? Trust me, when you walk into a room and producers go, Oh! that's the AT&T girl, or I've seen that big white head before. Oh, my God, aren't you Jack from Jack in the Box? Well, chances are you're not going to get the role. Now, of course, if you are lucky enough to be in one of those long-range campaigns, then you're probably going to make enough money that you just don't care. I'm sure Flo from Progressive Insurance is not really worried about getting a two-day job on CSI Nevada. Anyway, speaking of Nevada, if a production is filmed on location, well, that's another problem for character actors because oftentimes the producers will just use the local acting pool. I mean, let's say you're in Houston and you have a part for a Nazi. Well, it's going to be a lot easier just to find somebody in Houston, and yes, he may speak with a Texas drawl, But you could just overdub him, and it is still cheaper than hiring an actual Nazi and flying him halfway across the country. Also, if an actor isn't hot anymore, eh, then the agents lose interest. It's really, really tough. Not to mention, of course, Father Time not being their friend. You know, they get too old to play the cute waitress, the ball player, Julia Roberts' best friend. Although, isn't it amazing that Julia Roberts miraculously never ages. Everyone else around her does, but she doesn't. Well, for me, the most heartbreaking casting story involving a character actor was when I was on MASH, and there was an episode where we had a USO show, and we needed an accordion player. So we put out the word, and there were like 10 guys who showed up With their accordions, and one by one they came in and they all played Lady of Spain and they all read their two or three lines and they were all fine. Each and every one of them was great. And you go, oh man, I can only hire one. And what about those other guys? What about the nine that didn't get hired? How many casting calls do they get? How many times do they get a chance to say, hey, I'm going to be on MASH? Well, Unfortunately, nine of them didn't get hired, and the guy we hired worked for one day. And again, that may have been his first casting call in six years, seven years, who knows? Like I said, my heart goes out to these character actors, and so the next time you're in Jiffy Lube or Walmart or Staples, be nice to the clerk, because he may be one hell of an accordion player. Back after this. (laughs) How much thought goes into naming characters? Well, it can be a trap because you're looking for the right name, just that perfect name, and all of a sudden you're spending an hour on it, and you have way more things to concern yourself with than the name of a nurse. So what we try to do is, if at all possible, use the names of people we know, you know, kind of give them a shout-out, as long as they're not assholes in the script. You know, you don't want to necessarily do that. But we'll use names of friends of ours. I'll use names of old girlfriends. I've done that on any number of occasions. I'll also use names of girls that I had hoped would be my girlfriends, but blew me off. And when those girls see their name used on a show... And I'm sure they're going to be kind of curious, so they're watching to see who wrote the episode. So when they see the writing credit, kind of what I hope, my fantasy, is that what they will see is written by the guy I should have been nicer to and gone out with, and maybe then I wouldn't end up living in a trailer park as an alcoholic and David Isaacs. So we try to use those names. I also still have my high school annual, so that's a great source of different unusual names. Now on MASH, we had to use five or six names every week because there were always patients coming through, there were military personnel, doctors, nurses, USO troops, So we would always need names. And again, you just don't want to spend the entire morning coming up with names. So what we did for season seven is we took the Los Angeles Dodgers roster and we just went down the list. So there is Garvey and Say and Rao and Roden and Hooten. And as we got down to the end, we were dealing with coaches. And by the final episode, we had Scully for Vin Scully. So that's what we did. There was a girl that I went out with in college for a very brief time, and her name was Honoria. And I said to her, oh, it's kind of an unusual name. Do you have a nickname? Do people call you Honey? Something like that. And she was very adamant, no, my name is Honoria. Okay. Well, we went out for a couple of times, and and then that was it. When we were writing M.A.S.H., at one point, we were looking to name Charles Winchester's sister. Now, you can't just name Charles Winchester's sister Cindy or Taffy or Brandy. You know, you need sort of an appropriate name. So I thought back to Honoria, and Honoria Winchester was born, and then Hawkeye, to get under Charles' skin a little bit, would refer to her as Honoria, but that's just the fallout you get from blowing me off after a couple of dates. Woody Allen has an interesting thing. When he names characters, he always gives them short names because he still uses a typewriter. So he doesn't want to be typing out Poindexter every time the character of Poindexter speaks. So all of his characters are Jan and Ben and Sue characters with three- and four-letter names. When Anne Flett-Giardano, Giordano, is a longtime writer-producer for Frasier, she's won a bunch of Emmys, currently she's a producer on Mom, well, she wrote a murder mystery that was published a couple of years ago. She called me up and she says, is it okay I want to name one of the true assholes in the book Ken Levine. I was touched that she thought of me, certainly. I said, absolutely, I I would be honored. But the point there is if you are going to use somebody's name in a very unflattering manner, it's usually a good idea to get their permission first. How do you get Tom Hanks to star in your movie? Well, this is a true story. You are not going to believe it, but it really is a true story of how David Isaacs and I got Tom Hanks to star in a movie we wrote back in the 80s called Volunteers. That was the movie in which Tom Hanks also starred with John Candy, and Tom played a uh, preppy asshole who, in order to get out of a gambling debt, switched places with his roommate and went off to join the Peace Corps in Thailand in 1962. Well, we wrote the original draft of the movie in 1980. The movie didn't come out until 1985, but that's par for the course in feature writing. You write a draft, and then a director is attached, and then he falls out, and then the studio puts it in turnaround, and another studio picks it up, and they bring on a director, and you get fired because he brings on somebody to rewrite you, and then they hate his rewrite and they fire him and then the movie gets put into turnaround again and then a third company picks it up and all of a sudden you're back on the project. That's the way it normally works. When we wrote the very first draft of Volunteers back in 1980, our producer Walter Parks asked us, who do you think might be good to star in it? And we said, well, there is a guy on a TV show that we really like. The show is called Bosom Buddies, and he's one of the stars. His name is Tom Hanks. and He seems really funny and really good, and we kind of have him in mind as we're writing this thing. Well, of course... Tom Hanks was not a name then, and there's no way that Tom Hanks could get a movie made back in 1980, so that was forgotten. But Tom, at the time, was William Morris client, and so were we. And so, for fun, we slipped him a copy of the script, and he loved it. But, of course, there was nothing anybody could do about it. Okay, so now we go... Uh, 1981, 1982, different studios, different directors, different writers, finally back to us. It is a tri-star, HBO, and they say, who would you like to star in the movie? And again, we said Tom Hanks. Well, now Tom Hanks had just done Splash, also with John Candy, And that movie was a huge hit. And all of a sudden, Tom Hanks was a breakout comedy star. He was the Will Ferrell of the moment, I guess you could say. And he was being offered every comedy screenplay in town to do as his follow-up movie. And none of them were anything that he wanted to do. Eventually, he went to his manager and he said, you know, there's a movie that I read about five years ago about the Peace Corps. And that was really, I would love to do that. And his manager said, well, uh, do you know the name of it? No. Uh, Do you know what studio? Do you know anything about it? No. He said, well, okay. I mean, it's like trying to find a needle in a haystack, but I will do my best to try to track down this screenplay about the Peace Corps. So he hangs up the phone with Tom Hanks. I swear to God, this happened. An hour later, one hour later, our producer, Walter Parks, calls this manager and says, hey, I've got a screenplay I'd like Tom to consider. It's about the Peace Corps. And the manager goes, yes, okay, messenger it to his house right away. So we did and the manager calls Tom back and he goes, well, okay, you know, I've, uh, I've made a bunch of phone calls and uh, tracked this thing down for you. Uh, it was difficult, but I did. I tracked it down and there is a movie about the Peace Corps that was made a few years ago that's on your way. Hopefully this is it. So the screenplay arrives and Tom picks it up and he just opens it somewhere in the middle, and he recognizes we had a Margaret Dumont joke. Margaret Dumont was basically the foil for Groucho in all those Marx Brothers movies, but he opened it up, and there was the Margaret Dumont joke that he remembered from five years ago, and he said, this is the script, this is the one. So at 5.30 that afternoon, after sending him the script at like 4, 5.30 in the afternoon, we get a call from Walter Parks saying, Tom Hanks is in. He's committed to the movie. Okay? It was that easy and that bizarre. You know how the planets just have to line up a certain way? Well, they certainly did that day. Hollywood and the Vine. You like wine? Sure you do. Well, I've got the perfect wine club for you. It's called Wink, W-I-N-C. And Wink is a revolutionary wine club that delivers high-quality wine... ...straight to your door. Now, they partner with innovative winemakers from all over the world... ...and they produce a wide variety of small lot, handcrafted wines for their members. Now, with Wink, again, that's W-I-N-C... ...you have the freedom to pick and choose the types of wine... ...and the number of bottles that you receive each month. And the best part is they offer a 100% satisfaction guarantee on every single bottle... And the bottles are only like $13 a piece. So, if you want to try it, and since you are such a, a valuable listener to this podcast, I will give you $22 off your first order. And all you have to do is go to Wink.com Hollywood. That's Wink.com Hollywood. And it gets better because if you order four bottles or more, they will kick in the shipping as well. So, once again, wink.com/slash Hollywood, $22 off your first order. And seriously, it's great, great stuff. Hollywood and the Vine. The good thing about having your show on a major television network is that you're going to get more viewers. The bad thing is you also are going to get standards and practices. Yes, the standards by which networks have to adhere are a lot tighter than they are on cable or premium cable. You can't say shit. You can't say fuck. You can't say any of those things on CBS. And when you're a showrunner, you're always dealing with the standards and practices, people. And it's kind of an ongoing fight. And it's interesting because back when we started with MASH in the 1970s, you couldn't use any sexual terms. You could never say penis. You could never say vagina. But you could do racial slurs. I mean, look at shows like All in the Family. They got away with saying the N-word on that show. But God forbid... You say penis on CBS in 1973, and the whole network would be shut down. So that's the kind of thing that we constantly had to deal with. And back in the 70s, when David Isaacs and I were on MASH, we would have this constant battle with standards and practices because they would always say, cut the casual profanity in half. Casual profanity meant hells or dams. It was a game because what we ultimately did, if we wanted eight hells and dams, we put in 16. And so then we just cut out the eight that we didn't want to use— and then we had the eight that we felt were necessary and had some impact. We tried to slip something by CBS once. I remember there was an episode where Radar was bringing a visiting general to the VIP tent. And he said, write this way your, and this is the way we spelled it out in the script, VIP, in capital letters, then N-E-S-S. So it was your vip Yeah, they flagged us. They got that one. Another time I remember, this was season seven of M.A.S.H., where Potter ends a scene by saying, I'm too old for this crap. Oh, my God, you can't believe the brouhaha that Potter saying crap caused with the CBS Standards and Practices Department. And we fought them and fought them and fought them, and we finally won. And it is always amusing to me because as I watch Everybody Loves Raymond down through the years, what's the classic line that Peter Boyle had practically every episode? He said, crap, they said it two, three times an episode. But just to say it once, on MASH in 1977 was, like I said, a giant how-do-you-do. On Aftermash, we had a situation where we introduced a new character, Wendy Gerard, who was a very attractive young nurse. And we wanted to show that she had an awful lot of moxie and that she stood up to the David Aykroyd character. You, of course, know all of these characters by heart of Aftermash, I'm sure. But uh, David Aykroyd fancied himself as this ladies' man. So we have a scene where she is in a whirlpool and he walks into the room and he starts being really flirty. And she's tired of this oaf, tells him to get the hell out, and he remains. So what we had her do was stand up. Now, she's supposed to be naked in the scene, but of course you're not going to see any of that. She stands up. And basically says, okay, you want to see a naked lady? Are you happy? Here you go. I'm naked. And he gets very embarrassed and he leaves. So that's what we wanted to do. And the way we figured we would shoot it was as she stood up, the camera would be on her back and it would pretty much get her from the shoulders up. That's it. In fact, the actress herself wasn't actually topless when we were going to film the scene. Standards and practices said, you can't do that. We said, but we don't see anything. And they said, yeah, but still, there is the suggestion we know what the character is seeing. We said, so what? They said, well, the audience is going to perceive that she's naked. We said, yeah, so what? I brought up the classic episode of the Dick Van Dyke show. Remember the one where Laura was in the bathroom and she was taking a bath and she got her big toe stuck in the faucet. The fun of the show, of course, was that everybody imagined Laura Petrie naked in a bathtub. And that was in the mid-60s. That was okay. And here we are, 1984, and we can't do that scene. And what we had to go through saying, okay, we'll show her face. We'll show his face. And literally, we were negotiating how many inches of her back and shoulders we were able to show on the air. Insanity. Absolute insanity. A couple of years later, also with CBS, we were doing that show for Mary Tyler Moore, and we had a line where Mary said something about yin-yang. You bet you're yin-yang or something. I don't remember exactly what the line is, other than the fact that she said yin-yang. We got a call from standards and practices saying, we can't do that. Why not? And our standards and practices person at the time was this very sweet old lady, kind of like Aunt B from The Andy Griffith Show. She called and said, You can't do that. We said, Why? She said, Because yin yang is a euphemism for penis. We said, First of all, we didn't know that, <laughs> you know, and we're young people. And secondly, it's Mary Tyler Moore saying it. So it. Doesn't have that connotation. Plus, we're not going to have America's sweetheart say a euphemism for penis on the air. She said, sorry, you can't do it. I said, tell you what, go around to 10 people in the office and ask them if they think that yin-yang is a euphemism for penis and if two of the 10 say yes, we'll drop it. She says, no, you can't do that we have a list. I said, you have a list? What do you mean you have a list? She says, we have a list of euphemisms for penis. And again, imagine this is a very sweet old lady. I said, okay, well, I tell you what, so that we don't bump into this again, I'm going to put you on the speakerphone. I have my writing staff here. Would you please go down the list and read them off one by one. And so she did, you know, Schmeckle and Putz, Johnson. And of course, it was just hilarious hearing some 75-year-old woman rattling off these terms. (laughs) We were all just dying. And of course, we couldn't laugh out loud because she would hear us, but we were all just dying. So she goes through this very long list. And then I say, well, what about breasts? Do you have a list for breasts? She said, as a matter of fact, we do. Could you please read that list for us? Sweater meat, boobs, jugs, bazongas. She had probably 30 or 40 euphemisms for tits. And then I said, well, what about vagina? And here again, there were another 18 beaver, snatch, coos, etc., 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 and we're just dying. So we couldn't get yin-yang, but it was sure worth the 15 minutes of entertainment that we got that day from Standards and Practices. I'm sure every showrunner has his stories, especially if you've been around for a while. Here's one of my favorite Standards and Practices stories, and it hails from the 1970 Norman Lear show, Maud. That was the show that starred B Arthur, you might remember. Well, they would film two shows. They would film a 5 o'clock version, and then they would bring in another audience and film an 8 o'clock version. And there was one line in particular that the censor, and I'm calling him a censor, they call them the standards and practices, vice president, whatever, this is a censor. He had a problem with a certain joke, and he fought with the producers, and finally he said, okay, I will compromise. You can do it for the 5 o'clock show. But if it gets a laugh, it has to come out. (laughs) Now, how do you deal with logic like that? Like I said, standards and practices is a necessary evil on network television. It's one of the reasons why everybody wants to write for cable. Coming back with more Hollywood and Levine, the uncensored version of Hollywood and Levine, right after this. And now the words you've been waiting breathlessly for, that's going to do it for today. Now you can get off the Stairmaster. We'll be back next week with some more fun stuff. Our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, and Randy Thomas. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Also, if you're just joining the program, go on back and listen to some of the early episodes. There's some fun stuff there, too. And I am now on Instagram, as Hollywood and Levine, so please follow me. I promise not to have too many pictures of cats and food. And you can follow me on Twitter, at Ken Levine. So, that will do it. Get off the stair, Master. Have yourself a cold drink. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.